0: Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes and has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, God. Please be seated. Father, it's your word. Jesus is the word. And the Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates our hearts and minds to even take these words that are truth and to plant them deep in our hearts that they may bear fruit. God, would you do that even now for your glory's sake, that we might be transformed, that men and women even this day would come to saving faith here in the midst of this sanctuary where you are present. We thank you for the meal that we're about to have. Teach us to anticipate what is before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to begin this morning by thinking about One of your favorite meals, not necessarily your favorite restaurant, not necessarily your favorite food, but one or two meals that you've had in your life that you would say was magnificent, marvelous, everything was right. My guess is that it was centered on you being with someone you loved or a group of people that you loved, and many, many things took place that reminded you of of just how special it was to be together. This morning, before we dive into the text, I want to give you seven Seven realities to that kind of meal. This is not a seven-point sermon, but these are seven points that I want you to hear and remember as we wade into this incredible text. Great meals have these things in common. First, it's the occasion. Every great meal has a sense for its purpose. It could be a holiday. It could be an anniversary, a birthday. But there's a reason why you're gathering. In this case, with this last Passover feast that Jesus would have on earth, That was the celebration. And hundreds of thousands of people are moving into Jerusalem to celebrate this as they would each year. An occasion for a meal is a big deal. Second part of a great meal is the guest, the people who you are eating with. An invitation to come, to be part of something so special, it matters. And when you feel secure in the presence of the host or hostess and the people you're around, something special really exists. Then with the great meal, there's the anticipation. The moment that you've received the invitation, you've said I'm coming, you begin to anticipate what's gonna happen, not just what you're gonna eat, but the conversation, et cetera, that flows around the table. Then there's the setting in the atmosphere where everything has been taken care of by the host or hostess. You notice the, the elegant table, you notice the candles, you notice uh, the way the places have been set, everything about it matters. And then there is the food and drink itself, the actual meal and it's incredible, and you taste it, and it's fresh, and it's new, and it's, it's exciting, and you love what you're partaking in. And then there's two more things, the conversation. The conversation that you have with those sitting next to you with the host or hostess, and it's just beautiful. There's drama in it. There's laughter, maybe even some tears. But the most important thing of all is the host or hostess, the one who's invited you, the one who's responded to the occasion, the one who has made sure the atmosphere is right, the one who's actually leading and encouraging the conversation, the one who's paid attention to the meal or those preparing it, those who are making sure that the anticipation you have will be fulfilled or even greater. The host or the host makes it. God's word is full of pictures of meals. Some are metaphors and some are very real. The meal that Jesus was having prepared The last Passover feast was a real meal, and he was the host. If you take this list of things I've just given you, and you look at these meals in Scripture, you see how beautifully present these realities are. So let's move into this meal that Jesus is hosting with his disciples. We're told by Luke that it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a week, little over a week-long ceremony. And the Passover feast begins at the beginning of that feast. And so the Passover meal had to be prepared a certain way according to the law. So Jerusalem is going to have hundreds of thousands. Josephus would have said even up to three million. I think that's highly exaggerated. But you can imagine 200 or 300 people suddenly descending upon this little town. They're coming for the one purpose of this sacrifice, this worship, this time to bring honor to God. And there's a lot happening. So, vendors begin to show up weeks before. They are there to bring their spices, their trinkets, but above all, the lambs that will be sold so that people can make their sacrifice. So, as you read this story, begin to imagine what it sounded like. What did it smell like? What did people see, children, older folks? What did they see as this great tradition is unfolding before them? So much is happening. Long before, Jerusalem would begin to buzz with all this added commercial activity. And then finally, the day of sacrifice would be present. The entire festivity preparations would begin. 24 divisions of priests alone, instead of just one, which was normal, suddenly are now upon the city, taking part in the responsibilities. Just see the number of priests that are there. The priest's first job was to burn all the leaven. The leaven will be brought to the priest, having been swept out of each individual's house. They took this so seriously that the the father would take a feather and like a brush and a spoon and get every bit of leaven out of their house. Why? Because it represented sin. And once leaven enters into the bread, it can't be taken out. It's a profound picture of, of what we need and why we need Christ. And so they would bring this leaven to the priest who would then begin at noon to burn it. Or I'm sorry, finished burning it by noon. At three o'clock, the ritual slaughtering began. Now think about that. The Bible is a bloody book. The ritual slaughtering would begin as individuals would bring a lamb that would be eaten by up to ten people, and they would stand in line where there would be three huge shifts of priests. And there they would wait for their opportunity to take their lamb to the priest who would be holding a silver or gold basin. The individual would then slaughter his lamb. So again, picture the sounds, picture the line, picture the struggle of the individual holding the lamb in his arms. And then he takes it and he kills it. The blood is drained into this basin and then it is poured upon the altar. Each Israelite in that line, slaughtering his own offering. And after it is tossed, the blood is tossed at the base of the altar, The individual takes the skin of the lamb, and the lamb itself carries them on his shoulders out. Picture that. Picture the people, thousands of them walking through the streets. And he's now taking that that lamb to where it will be cooked. That lamb will begin to be eaten around six o'clock as it has been cooking now over a pomegranate spit. And inside the company, they're all dressed in white. They recognize the significance of what's happening. And then there's the host. The host's responsibility is to make sure everything is is, is, is purposeful. But most importantly, his job is to interpret the meal for those who are present. And so this lengthy meal will be interpreted by the host who says, these bitter herbs that have been used to cook that you now have in your mouth, they will remind you or to remind you of the bitterness that we felt as God's people enslaved. He would take the stewed fruit and by its color and consistency, he would remind them of what it was like for the people of Israel to make bricks for Pharaoh. And finally, the roasted lamb would be brought in and it would bring to memory that night where the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost. Picture that. Picture being a little child and watching what your dad's doing. And they would sit there and then they would eat. They would eat the unleavened bread, signifying the sin but also the haste of which they got to be ready to leave in the exodus and then they would wait as the death angels passing over their house as it went on to destroy every firstborn of Egypt so imagine the next morning the the, the pain and agony of moms and dads who had lost their firstborn of siblings who couldn't comprehend what had happened it's a horrific scene all signifying the profound grace of God in passing over those who had the bloodshed of the lamb on their doorpost. So Jesus now is ready to have this meal with his disciples. I think Jesus does some things that are very strange. And you've probably read over them many times. But I wonder if you've thought much about them. For example, why did Jesus tell Peter and John to move into the city and look for a man carrying a jar of water. It's secretive. It really is. And when you see that man following him into the master's house and say to the master, this is where the Lord, the master, wants to have the meal. Why did Jesus do that? I think this is significant. Kit Hughes, in writing on this, said, Judas already knew that he was going to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And so Jesus tells us in this passage, I earnestly desire to have this meal with you. It was a big deal. This meal was going to change history. It was going to change the way the bread and the cup would be seen forever. Jesus doesn't want anything to compromise this meal. And if Judas had known where the meal was going to take place, it would likely have been the place where he told those who would arrest Jesus to come because there Jesus would have been confined. Jesus he's God and in his sovereignty he is ordaining every aspect of this including the strange story of a man who's carrying a jar of water why is that a big deal well wouldn't there be many men carrying jars of water no men didn't carry jars of water they didn't they did carry water but when the men carried water it was always in skins So when Peter and John entered into that city and saw a man actually carrying water in a jar, they knew it was him. They knew that was the man for them to follow, and they did. And they moved towards this man in the home where he is a servant, and he goes, and they do what Jesus says, and that's the location. Judas didn't know where it was. The other disciples didn't know where it was. Peter did, John did, and Christ did. And now suddenly they're together together. And they're having this feast. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table. At the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now I want to stop for a minute. That verse is a, grace, is a great verse that helps separate Christianity from every other religion in the world. Christianity is not about you earnestly desiring to be with God. It is about a God who earnestly desires to be with you. A God who so earnestly desires to be with you, to feast with you, that he initiates the pursuit. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. It's true for all of us. Christianity has a God who from his very own lips says to his disciples on this last Passover, I have earnestly desired to have this meal with you before I suffer. Think about that, brothers and sisters. He wants us. He wants us to know that he is after us. He wants us to know that he alone is the one who can be the lamb that needs to be sacrificed once and for all. this secret-like preparation of Jesus was for a purpose. He wasn't going to miss this moment to be with his disciples. Jesus moves into the conversation, and he begins to speak about the bread and about the cup. Remember, the host has a responsibility, and that is to interpret the meal for the guest. So take those seven things I've given you, and you, you see it. The purpose of this meal, the occasion, is the Passover feast. Christ fulfilling what was required by the law. Second, you have this incredible setting where Jesus has secured a place where they can have it in isolation, and it's beautiful. The table has been set. Peter and John have have prepared everything. I know that the disciples are anticipating it, but what about Judas? The setting is present, and it is right. The meal was there. And the conversation unfolds. And here's the host, capital H, God himself. I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. He passes out one cup. It's not the cup yet. And then he moves towards the bread. And he says, take this, divide it among yourselves. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is right then connecting the bread to Deuteronomy 16, where we are taught about the bread of affliction, and that's what they would eat, reminding them of their own sin and affliction. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the bread of affliction. I have told you I am the bread of life, but in order to be the bread of life, I am the bread of affliction. I am going to become sin. Jesus passes out the bread Then after the supper, and I think this is important, he took the cup. You're going to hold the elements in your hands for maybe half a minute. And that's not wrong. Whether they were passed out or you came forward, however you partook of the elements, they won't be in your hands very long. That is not the way it was at this last supper. They had the meal. And the meal would have included a lot of conversation that we don't have recorded here. And then after that meal was over, Christ would have then passed out the cup. What's the point? We need to slow down. You don't need to necessarily stay down here longer. But you need to, and I need to, take time to absorb the reality of all that's taken place as we partake in these elements. Christ Jesus, after the supper, takes the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Jesus is referring back to Jeremiah 31, where he speaks about the new covenant. And this is what it means. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant that's being fulfilled. It's a covenant that's centered on a new heart. What has been ultimately external is now going to be internal, because I'm putting it on your heart's. It's about a new relationship. The relationship is changing. It's about a new knowledge in which in Jeremiah 31, they speak of how all have access to this knowledge in God. And it's about a new forgiveness. A forgiveness that is once and for all because of what Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb and high priest will go through for us. I encourage you to read Jeremiah 31 soon. You'll see what Jesus was talking about. But how does the meal end? Well, the conversation shifts. He now speaks to them and says, one of you is going to betray me. Isn't that amazing? The perfect man, God himself, has one who's close to him who's going to betray him into the hands of those who will ultimately arrest him and have him crucified. But it's not just about Judas. Judas. We're told by Luke in verse 24 that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. How could that happen? How could that happen? How could men who just heard all that Christ said about what was going to happen to him have their eyes shifted to thinking about themselves? Where do I rank from 1 to 12 amongst the disciples? That's the conversation. You know why it happened? Because the affliction of sin is deeper than we know. The ability for us to be consumed with self, even in the presence of God's glory, is revealed right here. This is why the father had to send the son. This is why Jesus had to die. And at this meal... Jesus is saying, everything is about to change. This bread that you have eaten in the past, this cup that you have drank in the past, all reflecting history in the past is about to change. I am the bread. This is my blood. This is my blood. Jesus had to die for the disciples, and Jesus had to die for me. Jesus had to die for the disciples. He had to die for me, and he had to die for you because sin is that deep and that dark, and he did. So how does this Luke 22 narrative impact what we're about to do as a body? Well, let's think about it for a moment. We're about to have a feast. The occasion of this feast is holy worship. There is nothing you're going to do today or tomorrow or tomorrow until the next Sunday, more important than what we're about to do, nothing. Holy worship coming together as the corporate body is the high calling of our life this side of earth. And we come to this occasion to feast because we are his guest. We start with a call to worship Because it's the Lord himself who's inviting us into this place. It's the Lord himself who calls us to have this anticipation. I don't think many people walking through the churches of a city like Dallas really are living in the the right type of anticipation about what's to happen. A long time ago when sanctuaries were, were designed, the goal of the sanctuary architecturally was that when an individual walked in, their eyes were to be lifted up, that immediately they would know that I've entered into a place that is not about me first. It is about the transcendent God. It is about the holiness of God. It is about the sacredness of God, but not just his transcendence that he's so distant and big and far, but his presence, which is also perfect. And so individuals would be struck by the atmosphere. They would be struck by the setting and they would have anticipated what this meant to partake of the elements because they were being reminded of how much this one true God earnestly desired to be with his children. So we've come to a place, invited, some level of anticipation, I hope it's even growing now, into a setting where these elements have been given for us. And we have a host. The host is actually the meal. He is the one who also is interpreting the meal for us. And his interpretation is, this is my body. Not the physical body of Jesus, that's not what we believe, but the real spiritual presence of Christ, mysterious in this place. That's what we believe. And he, the host, is telling us, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there, through the conversation of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we're reminded of the truth. On a Sunday morning, when a preacher preaches, there's a lot of conversations happening. Did you know that? There is a conversation going on between me and God that you may know something about, but a lot more than you probably hear me say. There's a conversation going on between you and God that I may know something about, but I can't know all those conversations. And there's a conversation that takes place between all of us and God because of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit And that conversation is full of the most intense drama. It begins with hearts that are dead, that could never beat for God. And then a God who sends his only son to die for us while we're still sinners. And then each of us has a story, if we're in Christ, of when that heart began to beat. Whether we were three or 33 or 53. And then we can say, he saved me. And because of that conversation, we can then sing and speak and praise him. And then we can recite together what it is we believe. And then together we get up and we move towards the elements. And while here at these elements, somebody's going to say to you, this is the body of Christ. This is his blood. And you're going to feast. And it is a feast meant to remind you of how thankful we should be for what he's done. And it is a feast to remind you that one day you're going to celebrate with him in a feast in heaven unlike any we have ever known. So my dear friends, what Jesus said in Luke 22 matters for today. He's the host. He's called us his own. We've been invited. The table before us is a table for Christians. It is a table for those who have asked Christ into their life, who have confessed their sin and their need for a Savior. If today you know you don't believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, then don't come forward. The Word of God says if you do, you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. Instead, stay in your pew and just ponder what you've heard. Because it's possible this day he's brought you to this place, so that you would hear the truth of who he is. In Revelation three, Jesus said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Who's knocking? Jesus. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? Eat with him, her, and he or she with me. That's our God. He earnestly desires to have this meal with us. Isn't that amazing? Father in heaven, as we get ready to come, we pray that you would truly stir our hearts. If we came with little anticipation, would you cause it to suddenly surge? If we came with levels of confusion or apathy, would you clear our minds even now and help us realize what we're about to partake in? Lord, if there are so many things going on in our mind, distracting us, things that are saying that they actually are more important than this, would you allow your glorious and powerful presence to cause all those things to become strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace? We love you, and we pray to you, giving you thanks for this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.